I always bring it up when I go to like the Ohio legislature or the Iowa legislature or even the Illinois legislature. And people instantly know it and it's been important for me because otherwise I'm just a, you know, I'm just a, a lawyer from New York uh, or, you know, I grew up in D.C. But, you know, to have the street cred of being from, uh, you know, going to Miami of Ohio is a big deal to them. Hello, Miamians. David Schwab here. Welcome back to Beyond High Street. Today we have a conversation with Jeremy Kudon. He is a partner at Oric Harrington at Sutcliffe and the founder of Oric's Public Policy Group. It's a timely conversation because he has spent the last several years working on behalf of DraftKings, FanDuel, the NBA, MLB, PGA Tour in their battles to legalize betting at a state level. Uh, that's obviously come to a big head uh, this past May when the Supreme Court made their most recent ruling. We laugh in the pod about what fantasy sports was like in the early 1990s when we were both at school and having to go uptown to pick up a USA Today to just look up the stats and then calculate it with a calculator. Pretty funny back then. We also dig into why he chose Miami. Growing up in Montgomery County, Maryland, like me, driving 500 miles west uh, to go to a Midwest school and, and leave the East Coast and and also talk about a few classes that he took that opened his eyes to set him up in the future uh, from a legal uh, and his law work, but also to uh, round out uh, his understanding of business. And he gives a shout out to Don Norris, and I, I would give out a shot to Don too, as many would, um, for some of the classes he taught. And Jeremy talks about that marketing 401 class. We pick up the conversation with Jeremy uh, on the moment where he was, what he was doing, the moment the Supreme Court made their ruling on May 14, and what the next 24 hours of his life was like. Enjoy the pod. I was actually in Boston meeting with the Massachusetts Attorney General uh, with a representative of the Red Sox, the Celtics, and someone from both Major League Baseball and the NBA. I had predicted a few different dates that the opinion would come down, uh, but May 14th had kind of become a big date for me. I had, I had told, uh, I have four sets of, two sets of clients. I represent Major League Baseball, the NBA, and the PGA Tour, and I also represent separately DraftKings and FanDuel. So I had told all of these clients that May 14th could be the day. We all started following this website, SCOTUS blog, um, which is a website really for Supreme Court wonks, which at one point in my career I used to be. Uh, so we were all following that, and we were walking into the room, uh, into the office of the Massachusetts Attorney General to talk about sports betting legislation. And all of a sudden, the opinions started to come out, and they rolled them out one by one. It's, it's, it's so old school. And so the opinion, we saw NCA versus, or, you know, Christie versus NCA. I can't remember what the, the title was. Uh, Murphy, it was, they changed the name for the new governor. And we, um, and then we were waiting for the person who blogs to give, you know, what the ruling was. And immediately it's, you know, seven, two for the petitioner, which meant that New Jersey had won, but there'd been some discussion about what that opinion could be. And at some moment I saw PASPA unconstitutional and literally like we asked the AG's office if they could print copies of the opinions 
we're sitting down to try to start this meeting, but at this point, my phone is blowing up. The first phone call I made was to Jason Robbins, the CEO of DraftKings, who I've been working with for four years now. And I remember his reaction was, oh my God, something finally went our way. Uh, and so it was a big moment. I was with uh, the leagues, with, with Brian Seeley from Major League Baseball. And Brian and I were supposed to do a series of meetings with legislators in Massachusetts that day. And we both just looked at each other and said, we've got to get back to New York and we, because we need to meet with my league clients to talk about what does this mean. So I flew on the airplane. I must have had – I am pretty good about knocking out my emails, but I couldn't keep up fast enough. And by the time I landed, I had 150 unopened emails. Some of them were, some of them were the – typical like email from like a partner at my law firm saying, Hey, did you see this? Um, others were more, uh, you know, were, were legitimate emails. Like, what do we, you know, what should we do now? Where should we focus? And I think from the league perspective, we'd been engaged in, uh, campaigns on sports betting for three months or four months at this point. So it wasn't like this was, um, you know, chaos for us. What we were really trying to see is how many state legislatures or which state legislatures could take up the issue immediately. And we wanted to be prepared for that because we had some pretty significant asks. So that was my, and, and we met, I remember at 4, 4.30 PM, I was in Boston in the morning. By 4.30 PM, I was at Major League Baseball's offices uh, in New York, meeting with all of our clients and talking about next steps for our strategy. Hmm. Yeah, and you said even with DraftKings, you had already they'd been a client for four years, and I'm sure some of the leagues and other partners you had long term clients, and so it was now really go time or, or time for you then to go have more conversations state by state, but no longer the hypothetical if, but now hey, this is real. What do we do to get this either on the ballot or uh, I'm sure you can share each state is a little bit different. And, Yes, widely, you know, wildly different in terms of how it goes from it's now on you to go live, but how do we make it go live? We had fortunately an infrastructure for both sets of clients in place, but let's focus on the leagues because they were new to this. DraftKings and FanDuel had spent three years, almost like trial by fire, passing fantasy sports legislation. We had lobbyists already on retainer in most states. Uh, the leagues were brand new to this on January 1. I was hired, uh, I was actually introduced by DraftKings and FanDuel to MLB and the NBA, uh, both of whom were, you know, at the time investors in those companies. And we slowly but surely started to build out a, a state legislative uh, apparatus for them, hiring lobbyists, meeting with legislators, uh, focusing on, you know, what our message was and what our model bill would look like. And then Slowly but surely also going out to the press. Uh, everything the leagues do is always news, especially when it involves sports betting. So when we sat down, we were pleased that we already had the infrastructure in place. Uh, and it was really about how do we build upon with the leagues, how do we build upon what we already have, and, and make sure that a bunch of states don't just pass laws that we think would hurt the integrity of the sport or could hurt the integrity of the sports and or don't recognize or don't uh, address the leagues what the leagues want, which you know is is bill, are bills that that protect integrity, but also respect the fact that without their games there wouldn't be sports betting. Mm -hmm. uh, and this was hard, um, but 
we, I sat at an airport. So the next, the very next day, I went to LaGuardia to fly to Missouri because we thought that was going to be a huge hotspot. The leadership had made comments to the press. Everybody was making comments to the press, like about we've got to pass legislation right away. Most of the states were already out of session. That was the only positive in terms of just like you know minimizing the the, the battlefield. But I ended up going to LaGuardia to fly to Missouri for a last-minute meeting that was taking place, a big meeting of stakeholders. Uh, it was, and uh, the, the Jefferson City is almost impossible to get to. I ended up being sitting in LaGuardia at the Delta Sky Club for seven hours waiting at a storm, and finally it was just like, I can't get there. So that was my Tuesday. The day after the big news, I was stuck at the Delta Sky uh, Club, which I spend far too much time in anyway. Uh, but... We we did act very quickly. Uh, we we were already deeply engaged in discussions in New Jersey and New York, among other states. Um, New Jersey passed a bill that we knew New Jersey was going to do what it did. It, it basically ignored all of our league's asks, but they were also the league's opponent in the litigation. New York was a little more painful. We we desperately wanted to pass that bill. We were able to get a compromise with the casinos, and it just fell short. And I think there's political reasons for that, and I'm looking forward to next year. But that was really what we did. It's the longest answer, though, to the question. Yeah, and, and so the, for this, just the summary of it, your clients are the, the private corporations, the DFS, the da- daily fantasy sites, the leagues, obviously working on their behalf, going to states to try to get uh, the betting legalized. When, when did you – what was the um, – I guess the turning point, or you talk about four years ago from the, the FanDuel DraftKings, what were you doing at Aura, Carrington, and Sutcliffe then that brought these guys on as clients? Kind of, a, I imagine, a new space for you at that point. So I had created, I used to be a, a commercial litigator. You know, I would get on these giant matters, uh, commercial litigation matters, you know, whether it be Enron in the early part of my career uh, or the big accounting liability cases like the Time Warner AOL merger. Uh, this is stuff that's only usually interesting to uh, lawyers and litigators. Uh, most of the rest of the world never sees anything about these matters. Uh, but at a certain point, one of my clients or two of my clients were direct TV and dish network, the satellite TV uh, providers. And they hired us to help them with a series of appellate cases. Like I said, I used to be an appellate lawyer as well. And Part of that, all of those cases involved uh, taxes on satellite TV that were not on cable TV, and that was being done by the cable industry and state legislatures. They were the ones pushing for these taxes. So I was asked as an accommodation to help these companies, DirecTV and DISH, develop and implement a a national state legislative um, campaign or initiative where we'd hire lobbyists and we'd try to kill these bills, these taxes, before they were uh, passed by the, the legislature, which would prevent us from having to sue on constitutional grounds. It gets a little wonky, but basically I'd never done anything. I was from the DC area. Um, so politics was, you know, always in the, you know, the water there. Uh, I grew up loving it. Uh, I had visions in 1992 of, of, you know, maybe going into some kind of, you know, campaign kind of world after the Clinton Bush election. Um, but I, you know, ended up being a lawyer. And, and so this just fascinated me. I was reading a book on LBJ uh, by Robert Caro, and I, I don't know, it, it just spoke to me. So I developed this practice that focused on helping companies develop state legislative campaigns. And those first several years, I worked on issues that 
were far from exciting uh, or high profile, but we started to get kind of a niche for doing it, and there weren't there wasn't really anyone else in this space that I was in. So I hate to make this. I'll, I'll keep this as short as possible. I got a call from someone at Uber in 2014 to come in and see if I could do what I was doing for the satellite industry for Uber. It was before, you know, they were still somewhat new, uh, but they were having battles in all these states and they needed someone who could had experience kind of running all these, these campaigns and giving them the bandwidth that they needed that law firms can do by, you know, I have a pretty big team and we would help them battle all these, in all these states. Unfortunately, after two meetings, and they were very favorable meetings, uh, it turned out we had a conflict. So I was a little bit down on that because that would have been, I felt like, a game-changing event for me in my practice. Um, but you know, during that period, I started to reach out to other potential companies. And I, I had played fantasy since I was a senior in college at Miami, but I had never uh, – I'd seen the ads for Daily Fantasy. It was still the early days. I just emailed the founder of FanDuel, Nigel Eccles, like literally sent him an out of the blue email. No one ever responds to those emails, by the way. And I guess I just got lucky. He responded. And three months later, I was representing both DraftKings and FanDuel. And then a year later, they, you know, I think spent over $400 million in advertisements. Uh, most people saw one of those ads, at least. Uh, and it just became the craziest engagement or, you know, it was a career changing engagement for me. I have a funny fantasy story, which I'll share here in a second at Miami. Uh, do you remember what you wrote in that email to him? I introduced myself. I'm, I made fun of the fact that I don't usually send these type of emails, but I thought you know, based on feedback I'd received you know, from certain lobbyists that, that I work with in states that the daily fantasy sports industry was uh, – it could face some issues if they didn't hire, you know, or didn't, you know, hire me and, and, and uh, start focusing on the state legislatures and on state AGs. It turned out I was, I was somewhat prescient, I guess, because it did become a big issue. Uh, but it was clear that, that this was a, a hot issue. And I just got lucky that Nigel that day had been meeting with Sports Illustrated. And one of the questions he kept on getting asked by them was what they were doing to secure their legality in the states. So it was a timely email, um, and so I think sometimes it's just it's just if you keep on trying, you you, you can hit at the right point. My Miami fantasy story, and I have to imagine you have the exact same one since we were in school together at the same time in the early '90s. We would walk up to the corner of Talawanda and High on Tuesday mornings and Wednesday mornings, put the fifty cents in the USA Today box pick out the USA Today, bring it home, open the sports section, and by hand, write in the scores and post them with tape or a stapler on the fraternity wall. I imagine that's how you were tracking your scores back then, too. Uh, Oh, absolutely. Um, Absolutely. And it was baseball, because I I don't even know if there was. I certainly wasn't doing football at that point. I can't recall if people did football back then, you know, because it's the early days. Uh, they must have. Yeah, we didn't. We I don't, did you do football? Yeah, that's what you we did. Football. That, that's what we were doing. And, and incredibly, we're I think in year twenty-five of almost the same group. But fortunately, we're doing it on apps and not doing it on Wednesday mornings ah. by USA Today. And that's the funny thing, right? Like we had to wait Monday night. The game went till midnight East Coast time. That didn't show up in USA Today the next day. It showed up on Wednesday. So we didn't even know if you had won or lost until three days after some of the games of that week had already taken place. Pretty funny. It's, 
It's so remarkable because, like, I, my kids and I think many, no people just don't understand the difference of when we went to school, and there really wasn't an internet. I mean, there was no such thing. Or if there was, like, I think one guy in my fraternity, like a sophomore when I was a senior, like, you know, was talking about the internet and and even email. <laughs> you know, like, and, I, and we were making fun of him. We're like, oh, come on, that's never going to work. And I remember it in the library, like, you know, that they had like the internet, but it, it, you had to know how to code. I mean, it, it was no different than me. Like, you know, being on war games, you know, yeah. to figure out how to use that thing. So go back, and meanwhile, coding's now a requirement in, on campus for everybody. Go back to something you said earlier. So in 89, you were in D.C., and I grew up in D.C. too, and we ventured 500 miles west out to Miami. But I guess two-prong. One is, why Miami um, as, a, as a D.C. kid? And then two, you mentioned in 92, kind of... Uh, the, the thought of getting into law or after Bush Clinton, but kind of why Miami? And then what, did, what was it in college specifically that moved you into this area? Or how'd you take advantage of it from internships or classes or professors along the way? Excellent question. So I'll start with why Miami. Uh, there were a few reasons. So I, I swam in high school and in my first year, freshman year of college. So I was recruited by uh, the great Pete Lindsay, the former coach of Miami. Uh, and I loved the campus when I got there. Um, it, it really was, it remains a special place. But I also, there was this public Ivy book um, that was out. I don't know if you recall it. Yep. Or you, you, sure. you, um, I later learned that the guy who wrote that went to Miami or worked at Miami, <laughs> which sort of took some of the luster off of it. But it, it worked perfectly then. Like I, so there was that. And my mom had, when she was in college, had dated a hockey player at Miami. So she always had fond memories of Miami. And so when you put those three things together and then you add the fact that I think six other people from my high school, Wooten High School in Montgomery County, also went to Miami with me that year. Uh, it was a hot school. And I was, you know, excited to, to leave uh, the D.C. area and try out the Midwest. Um, that's a whole other story. You know, being in the Midwest for the first time, I'm sure you remember kind of almost the culture shock of that. Yeah. Uh, but that was why Miami was, you know, between swimming and it was a, 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 the right place for me. And I just thought, um, and it had a great academic reputation, which it lived up to. It just, um, that public Ivy book definitely was compelling. Mm-hmm. And then what about at school? Was there a professor that you remember that helped along the way or that started uh, pushing you right in the direction of law? So there were two professors. So my dad was a lawyer. So from eight years old, I always wanted to be a lawyer. Like I always said that. And I wanted to be a sports lawyer. You know, like that was the thing I said, which um, I, you know, but I had two great professors at Miami, both of which had huge impacts on me. One was Professor Augustus Jones, who I think has passed away. I, I hope I got that right. Um, but he was in the history department and poli sci. He was in the poli sci department. I'm sorry, and because I it was a history major, but I took almost as many poli sci credits as history credits. And he taught constitutional law, um, two courses of it, and I took both. And I really, I you know, everybody grows up or has like th- thoughts of being something when they're a kid, and that just fulfilled for me. I I truly felt like this was something I wanted to do, and and he was just. Tremendous. The other professor I had, though, when I was a senior, kind of as a joke, I told my fraternity brothers I was going to take a marketing class because, like, I, you know, we used to, like, you know, get in battles as to what was easier, liberal arts or the business school. So I was like, guess what? I'm going to take one of your marketing classes and, you know, I'm going to get an A. 
And so I ended up taking, I must have taken 301 as the first semester. And then I took marketing 401, or I took like 101, and then I took 401 with one of my friends, like industrial marketing with Professor Norris. Um, and I loved it. Like, you know, it was really, I, he was great. I, 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 I had, an, I just felt like I had a knack for it. Um, and I, I really, growing up in DC, the one downside at that time was really there was no business. Like I'd never been to a, like I'd never seen a business. Like there were law firms and there was the government and then maybe the, you know, the Navy, but there was no such, I, I, I don't know if you recall like any businesses around right. at that time. No. It, it was a different area then. And then, but I, yeah, keep going. yeah, go ahead. So, yeah, so I didn't go to law school out of college though. I spent four years, three years at Great American Insurance, which I, I was recruited out of at Miami, you know, through the Career Center, um, and did marketing. Um, and so, I went to law school. And why, why the jump into law school then, or, or why after three years was it that it was time to go to law school? I, at a certain point, I was doing, I was doing well. Um, and insurance, uh, I think I had one of those moments I broke up with my college girlfriend, you know, I was living in Hoboken, New Jersey, which I wasn't from. And at that time you really, if you weren't from New Jersey, you're kind of an outsider. Uh, but I, 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 you know, I, I remember I was just, I was like, you know what? I love law. I want to, you know, this is what I wanted to do. I know I'm doing well in this, but I wouldn't, I didn't want to look back 50 years later and say, I didn't pursue something I'd always wanted to pursue. So I, you know, I, I followed that. I, I, and I remember everybody I talked to is like, you're not going to, you know, sure. You're going to go to law school. Like it turns out like everybody in insurance has that, that moment where they're like, yeah, you know, I want to go to law school and they never follow through. But I did. Um, and I, you know, I was, it was the greatest decision I ever made. And just going back one sec, professor Norris, Don Norris was one of my faves on campus. Two, ah. as a professor, and then even coming back or, or going back in the last 20 years and either guest speaking in classes or just going around and seeing him. He's a, he's a fantastic guy. Oh, wonderful. Yeah, no, he was great. I, haven't, I have not kept in touch, but he really had a, a, um, a, a real impact on me. And it's funny. That's the great thing about professors. You know, I mean, uh, I wish sometimes – I think back I should try more often to – let professors know how much they meant to me or, or impacted me. Even if I'm not doing marketing, it's still part of what we do in everything we do. Yeah. Curious how, how much in the uh, legal practice or maybe even public policy, because of a lot of your works in D.C. or certainly state uh, legislation, how many people you've run into that are Miami grads in that side of the world um, from a <laughs> business standpoint? I wish I ran into more, honestly. Um, so I, uh, it's funny. I never, I knew of Paul Ryan. I don't do anything on the Hill, but like Paul Ryan was a year ahead of me uh, at Miami. Uh, and I certainly remember he was in, I, I, we took a lot of the same classes. You know, it, he would never remember me, but then years later, I kind of remembered him um, because we were both in poli-sci classes at the exact same time. Uh, he probably took Professor Jones. But I, you know, a lot, even in the Ohio legislature, I think the thing about, you know, there's a few Miami grads there. And, and one of my lobbyists is a Miami grad. Um, but not as many. I always bring it up when I go to, like, the Ohio legislature or the Iowa legislature or even the Illinois legislature. And people instantly know it, and it's been important for me. Because otherwise, I'm just a, you know, I'm just a, a lawyer from New York. Uh, or, you know, I grew up in D.C., 
But, you know, to have the street cred of being from, you know, going to Miami of Ohio is a big deal to them. And sometimes I can actually just say our real name, you know, Miami University. What, what would you, what's the tip to the, the 18-year-old kid coming out or the 22-year-old young man or woman leaving about the, the getting, be, being well-rounded and becoming a lawyer or in legal practice? It feels like, at least with the pods that I've done and people I've spoken to, the three fields where people started in one career and have stayed in the same career has been media journalism uh, law or the medicine, medical practice. And those three, it seems like you, you've, people have switched roles in those practices but have stayed true to it. You, you had some insurance and did a few other things. What, what do you tell somebody about either before you jump into law school or while you're at law school, what you should do to keep learning and, and help yourself uh, for the long run of a profession that you may just be in the same one your entire business life? I think that you, it's paradoxical what I'm going to say. On the one hand, you need to learn the ropes of the law. Like the, the law is so big. And I think that you really, when I talk to people who are interested in it, you know, most people who know law are, are see it from TV. You know, they want to be a trial lawyer or something like that. Uh, but what law school teaches you is a way of approaching life, which is that, and this is going to sound counterintuitive, but that you're supposed to look at the world as gray, not black and white. Our goal is not that different than, than doctors, that we're translating for our clients a, you know, uh, something that can be pretty uh, you know, um, difficult or complex or seem complicated, but for us it's not, and our goal is to translate. But we're not supposed to be looking at a situation saying, oh, this is the way it is. You have to look at it and say and make both arguments, and I think that that's an important thing the beauty of the law is that, again, it's so, there's so many aspects to it. So after 10 years for me of defending clients or of you know, looking for ways to interpret what the law is and how that can benefit my client's case, it, to me, I've just now really focused on creating those laws, crafting those laws. Um, it's, it's still part of what the law is. It's just another aspect of it. I, I, you know, to answer the question directly, though, I think that um, I, it's funny you say that because I, I, there's so many people I talk to who are like, oh, I, you know, I, I tried the law and I gave it up. I think there's just something about, like, if you go through this, you can find so much uh, enrichment from it. And, uh, you know, if, if you can find enrichment in, in, in finding the right case. You can find, for me, the thing that gives me the, 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 the greatest joy or, or pleasure is when I can come up with a strategy for a national campaign. Uh, and, you know, and, and really implement that strategy for clients. So I can see how I think it should play out. And then, you know, as you watch it being executed, there's nothing more exciting to me. And what is, what's next in uh, daily fantasy or sports betting now that it is? Well, I imagine what's next is each state making a decision on if it's legal or not. Is there something else to that? I mean, that's complicated. It's not an easy answer, but is that really what's next, or is there something else behind that that could drive things forward? The next thing is each state taking on the issue and, and opening up their markets. And I think what you're going to see, David, is that 10 or 12 states are going to follow. Uh, so right now we have 
six states have legislation on the books that would allow them to offer sports betting, but only three or four are actually operational. Uh, they're kind of dipping their toe in the water. New Jersey is the is the first state that has a true mobile provider, sports betting provider, which is DraftKings. They opened up their sports betting app a few weeks ago, and I know it's a shameless plug for one of my clients, but it, it's fantastic. Um, it's the future of sports betting. Uh, you can do in-play betting, all the things that are exciting that, that I think are going to revolutionize sports betting in the United States. Um, once I think states, other states see uh, those markets flourish, those original markets, you're going to see more. And then I think by the next five years, almost every state will have sports betting in some form. So if I'm driving up 95 North uh, from D.C. and I, I go through Philadelphia and I put on the DraftKings app and try to get into the game, it it will just say, hey, you're in, you're in Pennsylvania, you cannot. And then I drive 20 minutes north and I'm in Jersey and Elizabeth and I pull off at a rest area and click back into DraftKings, it just goes live, right? It's that Correct. simple? Correct. That simple. And, and, and really exciting. I mean, if I was to have tweaks, obviously I want them to use official league data, which is something that the leagues would like and I think is right. Um, but yes, all of those things are, are true. And uh, it's, I, I did it the other day. I actually was driving to pick up my daughter at a sleepover and uh, I pulled off and, and, and signed up for the site for the first time and, and used the app. Uh, so it, it is that simple. Uh, that's, the first, that's the first time in the United States that that's happened. Uh, in Nevada, you have to go to the actual casino to sign up. That is great insight from Jeremy, and certainly not the last time you guys and I have heard his name as it relates to betting. And just the conversations he talks about representing the satellite companies and the battles of satellite versus cable and the prospect of working with Uber four years ago, you can see that he's got his finger on the pulse and the finger on what's next, satellite cable different types and modes of transportation and now legalizing betting uh, from a state perspective. Jeremy, thank you. Thanks for taking the time. I hope everyone has a great day. Good luck yourself with your own fantasy leagues this coming football season. I'll see you all at Skippers. <laughs>